Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Friday, February 23rd. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, Trevor May here with you. We have spring games in progress. Feels so good to have baseball on the screens again. On this episode, we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to talk about what you should be watching for in spring games. What matters this time of year when you're watching job battles? You're looking at guys testing out new pitches. You're looking at guys trying to make swing adjustments. We'll dig into a whole bunch of that. We have another deep dive. Eno and Trevor are going to tell you everything you've ever wanted to know about the two-seam fastball. So we're going to continue that series. And time permitting, we're going to talk about what you do when there's disagreement in an organization across a coaching staff. I imagine that happens sometimes, <laughs> given the number of people all trying to row in the same direction in a major league organization. Gentlemen, I want to start today with what I think is the tweet of the week. This came from Matt Gelb. He's the Phillies beat writer for The Athletic. And this is the tweet. Many cell phones aren't working. A bird is shit on Aaron Nola's shoulder this morning during photo day. Then the entire Phillies complex lost power. How do you top that? Like, that's the worst possible start you can have to a day at camp, isn't it, Trevor? It depends on your perspective. Uh, some of the play, if they're like, well, we can't do anything today, go home. Players are like, this is a pretty good day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but being a journalist, I can tell, I could see how that'd be uh, very, very annoying, especially having no phones working. Would it, like, was there a storm? There was a big storm, right? Was there a big storm? There was some kind of intermittent, like, nationwide outage. There were places all oh, over really? the place that didn't have it didn't, didn't impact me i was fine but uh yeah seemed to be a problem even beyond florida it does get worse i mean joe musgrove dropped a like a weight on his toe like super early in spring training and like had like this whole year was terrible that's worse <laughs> than the bird incident i think but picking up his kids popping his acl that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. yeah it could get worse uh in terms of injuries but yeah i mean i'm gonna be honest we're like oh what else is not working uh no one got shit on uh, i don't really care about that <laughs> I'm not gonna make fun of him. actually to be honest if i'm narinola's teammates i'm having a great day <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like Casey Schmidt's teammates are having a great day today. Yes, yes, they the group are. Chat is 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 filled with uh, nut puns today. <laughs> it's not great, you know. It, it aside from the fact that the pants are basically see through, see -through <laughs> there aren't enough of them. That's the other problem. So not enough fabric and literally not enough pairs of pants. So the pants situation keeps getting worse. In There's not baseball. enough pairs of pants now. <laughs> I didn't hear that one. That one's news. Wow, wow, Major League Baseball, everybody. Yeah, they went single ply and did the math wrong and didn't make enough pairs, which is just <laughs> single ply. That's outrageous. <laughs> it's the only way to describe it, I think, at this point. Did you ever have any undesirable interactions with an animal on the field? I mean, we see the highlights all the time of a squirrel or a cat or different things getting into the ballpark and the classic James Paxton getting a bald eagle to land on him like that was that the was the area amazing. has the has the birds. Did you ever did the, the birds ever get you? I never got I never got stadium. the birds. No, uh, you know, I've just played in a stadium with like 58 possums that lived in it and I never saw <laughs> yeah, them. <right. laughs> so, I've lived in the number one animals coming out of nowhere stadium in the major leagues and I didn't I didn't I to be honest, I'm kind of sad I never got to I always wanted especially like a cat. I would have loved if I saw a cat run on the field and they caught it and whatever, I would inquire after. Be like, does someone need to adopt it? Because I'm in. Yeah. Uh, that, getting a stadium cat would have been awesome. But no, I didn't even. The only one I actually saw in person was the bald eagle. He was he was playing against the Twins. I was there at that game. Um, and I remember seeing it like, what is happening? So was, <laughs> I think I was on the line when it happened. So it was uh, that one was crazy. But he handled it. 
I mean, if a bald eagle's landed on me, I am panicking. And he kind of panicked <laughs> a little bit, but he just so like, but I have to stay. I have to like stay pat for the anthem, which was really funny. He just tried to, <laughs> tried to get through it. That's right. It was during the anthem that probably helped keep him calm because he would have had the more human reaction of like flailing his arms all over the place. <laughs> and that situation could have gotten it a little worse. Killed it at him. He was the center of attention at the time when it's landed on him, too. <laughs> People probably thought that was pre planned. Things like that, though. Ball players, notoriously superstitious. So, of everyone you ever played with, who were some of the most superstitious teammates you ever had? Oh, I got one. Lamont Wade Jr. <laughs> really? He's a superstitious dude, um, especially when it comes to, like, cleats and, and socks. And, like, he, he's like, I'll wear one sock sometimes. I'll wear, like, he'll just change things up like that. Like, uncomfortable stuff to the point where... I, you're not wearing an undershirt today, but you wear them usually. He's like, yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable. I'm like, how is that going to make you play better? But it seems to. <laughs> Every- <laughs> no, maybe it's just for clearing out that middle block. But yeah, that guy changes things up or sticks with things uh, stronger than anybody. And another guy, Seth Brown's pretty. He's a baseball guy. And uh, he loves he loves like talking about all that, all that kind of stuff. Like he'll take a shower. If you're not playing as well, which as you can imagine, he did this a few times last year. You just take a shower in your full uni and clean it all off. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you can do that anymore, especially now with the spring training unis. unis. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> cleats on, hat on, everything. Just go rinse off that game. Um, Wash it all off. If you need someone to do something like that, it's, that's your guy. Wow. I, yeah, you take a take a shower with the current unis on, they're just going to rinse off. You're just going to disintegrate. Put on the drain. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe clog the drain. Maybe not. Maybe actually help clear out the drain. Who knows? I'm sure there were some superstitions you didn't want to hear about. Like, uh, I've been wearing these underwear for like three weeks, and you're like, don't, I don't. Nope. Don't tell me about it. Yeah. No, not in, no, not in this sport either. Um, <laughs> yeah, where you're exactly. just, just constantly uh, sweating. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, <laughs> but yeah, there are a lot of those, a lot of weird ones, a lot of not for, not for the, uh, not for the podcast type of stuff for sure. Probably best to keep that one uh, secret for people Let's out let there and keep those. Yeah. So we're all excited about spring games and for the people who listen to this podcast that are fantasy players, especially we have this tendency to want everything to mean something every game every at bat every pitch we want to try and draw some kind of conclusion from it and that's just not how anything works but certainly not how baseball works but I wanted to start asking you what should we be watching for closely in spring training because we know some guys are tinkering some guys are trying some completely new things out that they might not even use in the regular season what matters as far as just stuff guys might be working on? When do we have some confidence that something we see in spring training might actually pour over into games that count? That's an interesting question, especially at the beginning, because you will see a lot of experimentation. Like, uh, here's an example. There's been a lot of people talking about Strider and his curveball he's working on. It's weird that he chose curveball, frankly. I thought he was going to try sweeper, but maybe that's not something he's very comfortable doing yet. Anyway, don't be surprised if in his, you know, in his two, three, and four inning outings, these first like three, uh, if you see like a good number of curveballs, uh, more than you will probably see moving forward, just because he wants to see how it's playing against hitters. And those outings are usually, you know, the best opportunity to do it because you're throwing them to guys who are swinging at it or are usually younger or trying to make a splash. And then the guys who aren't, who are just seeing it, like you can get away with like, tinkering with it seeing how it's moving and stuff without you know being worried about damage or whatever so you know that's an immediate you know dagger to your confidence if you're out there just giving up hard hit balls out of the uh, out of the wazoo so you want to take advantage of the guys maybe tracking a little bit more uh so you'll see guys who are adding pitches doing that i think early and then i think 
the farther you get into the uh, to the spring, closer to that eighty-five plus pitch mark is where we're getting close to what they're th- what they're seeing is working the best and what they're going to be using on opening day. So uh, that progression is is really interesting. And pay attention if they're getting success. So like if they're throwing a new pitch and it's getting swung and missed at a lot, or they're throwing a lot for strikes, and they're comfortable with it. I think it's a pretty good idea to kind of start anticipating that getting thrown a little bit more and possibly being a new weapon, and that might translate. So, especially with a guy like Strider, Strider because he knows, he knows, he knows what he's looking for. That matters more than like what a model might spit out, right? Like, you know, I might, I might, as the pitching coach, be telling you, no, man, like keep throwing that. The stuff plus is great on it. Like it's gonna, it's gonna be good. Don't worry about that blast. But like, y'all are just you're fighting for your lives every time you're on the mound. So like, you know, if you give up a blast on a pitch that you're just trying out, like it's just less likely that you're going to throw that thing in the regular season when the games matter. Right. Confidence is the last box you have to check. So you can know about the, the, the stuff plus on it. Right. And it just depends on the guy, how quickly that translates into confidence and throwing it all the time. The guys, maybe the guys who've had a lot of success in the or recently or in the past, like the, the ACE guys, you know, the Freeds of the world, uh, that kind of guy, he adds a new pitch and he has some success. He's going to throw it right away. It's the type of guy he is. You can see that by like his arsenal and how he pitches. He's, he always does that. He throws everything all the time. A guy like Bassett would throw a pitch like he'd learn it one day, throw it the next day in an outing. Like the guys who throw everything, they tend to pick up pitches the fastest or be confident in them. Should we be worried about any of this? I remember you, we talked about this. You picked up the splitter. And this is the year of the splitter. But you thought that it, not necessarily that the splitter itself, I, I don't want to put words I'm sort of trying to remember our conversation, that not necessarily the splitter itself um, led to injury, but that like the way you were throwing it, the way that you had to get action on it, or like there's something about how you specifically interacted with a splitter that may have led to some, you had some injury that year. Would there be something that we should look for? Like all these guys are trying splitters. Is there anybody that we'd be more worried for that, or, you know, or less worried about? Like, what was it specifically that about the splitter that kind of led to an injury season for you? Kind of the way that worked was I historically um, have a like my arm arm path consistency was never an issue for me. So like that's why my changeup has always been f- like command wise or control wise one of my better pitches because it's so closely related to my fastball and those two things like the arm path of those were the same and i i just didn't get out of those slots like it just never it wasn't it was supernatural to me it was just something that was um i have a longer arm path and it was just easier to repeat and so that was never anything i had to pay attention to it's what a lot of people do though sometimes they get wonky in their in their arm path and then a splitter changed my arm path because of the way I needed it to move to get it to dive. I threw a straight change forever. So I threw a riding fastball. Those two, two things moved the same too, similarly. Mm-hmm, so yeah. it wasn't, I wasn't trying to get movement on the changeup. And then once I started to think, try to get movement on, on an off speed pitch that isn't a breaking ball, my arm path changed. Just subcon- I subconsciously thought like I need you're to You're thinking this. middle finger or you're thinking exactly. pronate or you're snap, thinking Or like something. the reach out, snap out. Like I'm a supernator guy who's trying to pronate it more than usual. It's so subtle. You can't feel it. Like and it feels different, but it doesn't like it's not telling you you're going to get hurt if you do this until it starts to hurt. And at that point, right. it's too late. So that's what happened. I mean, and that's I a just, bit of a risk with a new pitch, right? It's like 100%. A new pitch is and that's mechanics. why splitter. It's like splitter's the big one and it's and it's and that's what's interesting but the, these guys who are going to be throwing them at, at least a lot of the guys i saw like uh, uh bryce miller i saw a bunch of videos of him learning it this offseason they were doing it with like a pitch design person at a you know a cat like a like a drive line in like that. november yeah. i just picked mine up 
and it was a lockout yeah. year. So I kind of picked it up <laughs> in like four weeks and then just showed up. And they were like, that's great. And I was like, I'm going to throw it in games. And then that's just all there was. And splitter's not one of those pitches. Slider, you can do that. It's kind of a crapshoot, but guys who've been throwing it a little bit longer, it needs to bake a little bit longer. And guys who say, I've been working on it since I went home, I would be a little bit more confident in them throwing it. Right they're just starting it now. And then how about um, if they're like natural supinators or pronators? Like, is, do you think either is better? I mean, it's it's going so supinating and pronating. Pronating is sort of pulling down on your on your uh, index finger. Supinating is a little bit more palm open. Yeah, yeah. So out and in. Supinator is in. Pronator is out. So I always think of like D-pads when I try to talk <laughs> gaming. Yeah. Uh, I use but like, all the arrows to explain everything, I think, now at this point. It's it's working. But yeah, out and in. It seems like splitters are being used by people who are natural supinators because they can't pronate. And so it's a changeup that you can get dive on, at least, and well, kill the, the spin. But you don't have to pronate as much. So uh, I guess I'm happy when I see like a guy like Bryce Miller do it because he's a yeah, definitely a breaking ball guy. Seems like a supinator, like you know, has a really good spin efficiency. I think that's the kind of guy you'd want to see it. But when I see somebody like Joe Boyle throwing a sweeper, that I, I I'm not as excited about because Joe Boyle doesn't have good command and he's not doesn't have that kind of slot that's good for the sweeper. And I just don't think that that's going to take. And if it does take, it may be bad for him because. The thing that he's gonna that's gonna make him work is that he has slider command. He doesn't necessarily have fastball command, but he has slider command. If he starts throwing a sweeper, what if he loses slider command? Then he has no command of any pitch. So some ways that new pitches fit into the microcosm of what you already have that I think is kind of important to think about. I mean, pitch design guys, drive line, tread, those places, they think about that. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. But 100%. not necessarily the A's. <laughs> Not not necessarily the A's uh, yet, but it is it's it's trending the right way. But you know, there's a lot of guys who get sweeper like Sears and these. I mean, these guys they threw lots of sweepers and they get lots of horizontal movement as a staff. So him trying that doesn't doesn't surprise me. But yeah, I agree with you too. I think if he had like a split like a split or something that maybe fades a little bit and something that just you, that he can just throw the same everything the same way because exactly he's not a, just a, a wrinkle, guy. The curveball and the and the fastball are the are going to be his bread and butter. That's just the way it is. Thinking about yesterday's Dodgers Padres game as a bit of an example here for a moment. Joe Musgrove comes in, doesn't record an out, gives up four runs, has a a bad spring outing, a very bad spring outing from a results perspective. But just the fact that he's healthy and looks like himself right now, I think, means more than those actual results. As you see, guys get occasionally blown up in spring training. What would give you an actual concern, right? Is there anything in execution that would be problematic, whether it's a guy coming off injury or someone that we think is is completely healthy? Like, what, what would be an actual red flag coming off of a bad spring training outing? I would look at how things are moving more than even command or, or execution. Like, execution is probably the last thing that you need to worry about in your first outing in spring, especially as a starter. Like, you're going to have opportunities. Uh, guys who've been around, it takes a little bit longer, too. And you, you go a little bit slower in the spring or in the summer or in the winter. The winter is when the offseason is. And then you kind of just you figure yourself out a little bit. So I wouldn't worry too much about Joe. Um, he he notoriously has, you know, all of the pitches and, and is very good at commanding them. And that is his uh, bread and butter. So as long as he's not like, if not we're seeing weird movement and he's also really struggling to get near the zone, like missing badly because it's not something he does, then I wouldn't, especially him, I wouldn't red flag any of that. But 
you know, if you're a guy with heavy carry and you have like a shoulder injury and then you come back and your carry's down like four inches, getting that back is a little bit of question mark sometimes. So there's certain things that if you're trending towards that that range of movement that isn't as good or or is characterizing kind of the not as dominant pitches when you usually are outside of that range, uh, that is when I would be like, okay, there's something missing or something that's not like physically maybe not moving the way that i needed to yet whether that's a build it back up situation or if that's a it might be gone forever situation like that's that's kind of the what you look at at that point so um but other than that especially him and then he didn't really get the best draw for the first outing either so we got to give him that yeah go 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 play against the billion dollar team just first time so um that, that wasn't a great draw either Good point, too. Uh, Yuki Matsui looked filthy. The splitter was working big time, and that's kind of a job battle this spring. We don't know who's going to close for this team. Maybe they'll go with the committee. Maybe it'll be Matsui. Maybe it'll be Robert Suarez. Maybe it's someone else. But, you know, you know, I've wondered for a long time if we can actually try and look at the matchups when guys enter games in spring training, which would change over the course of the spring, right? Early in the spring, guys leave the game. The veterans leave the game early. If you're going to try and use someone in a higher leverage spot, air quotes, you'd bring them in earlier than you ordinarily would. Do you think there's anything behind that? Do you think there's actual meaning to that, trying to understand the intent of a team's future bullpen usage? Yeah, I wondered why Robert Suarez didn't come out in the first game. Yuki Matsui also came uh, early enough in the game that he would be going up against the, you know, the starters. Uh, so that, I think, is important. He's not one of the last three pitchers, the last three pitchers in that game yesterday, I didn't even recognize their names, I have to admit. So um, I think that they're most likely kind of minor leaguers. But at the same time, you know, even though it was the first game, the Dodgers didn't run out the, the full billion dollar lineup, you know, so he didn't have to face, uh, you know, the very the very best just yet. I still tend to think that managers prefer Velo in the closer role. And uh, Suarez still has, you know, two or three ticks on Matsui. I think that that's going to actually matter. We, we, in the research, there has been that suggestion that new closers have more velo than the closers they re they replaced, and so I think that is a spot where managers like to have velo. Trevor managed without without, <laughs> without the ninety eight last year, so uh, I don't know what your perspective is on on the, the closer situation. Did you know you were the closer? in spring did was that was that like a fait accompli or did you kind of notice it over time by the way they were using you in the spring it wasn't given to me out of spring honestly because i didn't really even close to start the year we also didn't win very many games but uh <laughs> right. so there wasn't many opportunities but i was just kind of being thrown in wherever the high leverage area was and we're just trying to get to the end uh that was kind of the goal so we had to see things develop a little bit and you know that's completely understandable like we weren't in the position to name anything at all and it just kind of happened when, when i came back that's when it kind of got like hey man like you know zach jackson who had been doing it before was all had also gone down so and danny jimenez so they got two guys they had been using in my absence too weren't available so there was very little experience out there and at that point there wasn't that much to start with so it, it just kind of fell to me and uh it's funny we had a conversation i was like hey could i get like two outings of you know, lower leverage, just kind of get my feet wet again. I got one. And then the next time I pitched, <laughs> it was like, in now you're closing. <laughs> and then I was closing two days later. And then I just, that was for the rest of the year. You mentioned experience. So that's something that from an analyst perspective, you know, a lot of analysts say that the data doesn't necessarily suggest that, that experience is a big deal. But 
it seems like managers do care. What about in this situation, you have Suarez who, you know, has had American high leverage experience, but not a ton of closing experience specifically. And then you have Yuki Matsui who has had closer experience, but in Japan, <laughs> like, can you imagine being in the, in the manager's shoes and weighing those two things? It's a good problem to have because I think they're both going to be good options at certain times. But uh, yeah, I think that you're right with the trending towards Velo. I think Velo is the common kind of thinking is you can just make more mistakes when you throw harder. And when you haven't seen a guy play much, pitch much, uh, having that trust, you know, right out the gate is just tough. It's just really, really tough. And so they might need to see more out of Matsui than they would see out of Suarez. Because, you know, he had that uh, year in, in 22 too. Like, so he's got a track record People have seen him, and he had that incredible second half in those playoffs. So that might give him the edge at the beginning. It's probably he'll probably give him be given the opportunity first, I would think. That's, that's um, but yeah. it could be it could be a short leash where they just kind of swap, like you know, go to the eighth and go to the ninth, uh, because you know they're different pitchers, lefty right, and too. Uh, they throw uh, they're a little bit different. They're pretty kind of different looks. So like if you can. Get away with you. You can swap them back and forth. Honestly, them going back to back might make the other one better. So uh, that might just be something they're kind of thinking about doing. Just let's use them like this and and see how it goes. Because you don't necessarily need a guy like you don't need the hater where you're like it's yours and you're the one pitching and I don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to do that. It's not a huge deal if that's not what you what you do. But um, I think that's a wealth of riches right there. I think they're going to be fine either way. Yeah, I think people make too much of a deal. Like so you were a reliever, man. Like, isn't the reliever's life like your your butt is always clenched? Like, you're just like, you know, you're like, I, I'm ready, I guess. I don't know. I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. Like, I, yeah, okay, today, when, what? Okay, I'm in. You know, exactly. like, that's, that's, that's the reliever's that life. Thing. It's not like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I won't come in in the seventh. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. for maybe a, an established five relievers or so, they get to be able to say that. But the almost every other reliever is like, yeah, now. Okay. Okay. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And some teams run their whole team like that. If you're on the raise, even Pete. It's not like Fairbanks is like, nah, I'm not coming in the seventh today. Sorry. Every once in a while, he can do that. But even him, sometimes he goes in the eighth and Adam closes. Like that happened last year, even when they were both when they were both fresh. So like, they're matchups. They're just like their matchups. They know who's going to be best against who, and then you just kind of get a relationship with that phone that's not necessarily the healthiest, but it is it is what it is. Uh, that'll give you nightmares if you hear it enough. Trust me. But you'd rather have it from your perspective. Is it better to be in a situation where it's optimized to just win games rather than knowing exactly when you're going to pitch? Like, which is better for you? Winning is obviously the 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 name of the game. I mean, that's why we're all there. So uh, you get the right group of guys where you all kind of know generally where it can be. You kind of those roles kind of shake out too. So the more you do it, even if it's kind of like you know closer by committee, you still figure out when it's your turn in that committee. So like that role kind of does. Oh, a bunch of lefties are coming up. I'm yeah, Jason your Adam. I've got the change up. You know, like they're probably going to go to me. Yeah, it's like a flow chart. You kind of the situation is a pattern. There was something to knowing that. Last year, especially the second half, I didn't have to worry about the phone ringing because I knew when it was me. <laughs> like, I just knew it was me. Like, most of the time I was up and throwing before the phone rang. So that was something I never experienced, like, not having to worry about that phone anymore. I was like, whoa, this is, I like this. This is nice. Because you just see everyone grab their jersey or their sweatshirt ready to, like, they look down and they grab it and they wait. And then I was just like, which one is it? Which one of you? <laughs> And I never got to do that. I was I was always a little bit envious of that. So there is something to be said. That's pretty good too. 
Excellent. Well, let's get to our first uh, breakdown of this episode. We're going to look at the two-seam fastball. And it's funny because you know, two-seamer, sinker, used interchangeably, but maybe they shouldn't be? I mean, that gets kind of confusing in and of itself. I almost feel like there's a, a negative connotation right now in some circles where if you say someone's got a good sinker, they're kind of like, uh... Please say someone's got a good two-seamer. We're like, yeah, all right, good two-seamer. That's cool. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? Like, let's 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 break this down. I mean, I think the sinker was just super popular for a long time. Um, I grew up uh, in Atlanta uh, watching the Braves. In fact, uh, who had the best sinkers? Greg Maddox. That sinker, uh, you know, that was the peak sinker at the peak of sinker time. Uh, Leo Mazzoni was like sinkers blown away. You know, that's that's how you establish. That was the ethos. And then hitters came up and said, well, if you're just going to keep throwing me sinkers away, I'm going to develop a swing path where I can hit those. And especially lefties develop this sort of, you know, I'm going to cover the outside part of the plate. I can even pull some of those pitches, or at least I can go uh, serve that to right field, you know. Um, and you got more of this kind of diving lefty with the body armor, you know, like some of these things, I think actually the trends, that's how it came together. You know, you could wear more body armor, you could get hit, you could dive in a little bit, um, and you could you could serve that, that out loan away sinker. Uh, and for whatever reason, that that trend died on the vine a little bit. And so we came to the time of the four-seamer, you know? And Trevor, I think, was right at the beginning of that where we started to understand because of the data and the tech, we understood ride better. Uh, and we talked about in the last episode how it's not always easy to see ride. Well, with the machines, we were like, okay, you've got 18 IBB, you got 19, this is good, we like this. You know, this is what we're chasing now. Um, and so it's become the time of the four seamer. I wonder if, you know, sinkers are going to come back, but you know, the other thing that is true is sinkers give up more contact. They suppress the hard contact a little bit, but they give up more contact. And, you know, we, we had a theory called defense independent pitching, which was that pitchers can't really control balls in play. And so if you have a pitch, the four seam that gets more strikeouts, more whiffs versus the sinker that gets fewer whiffs, you're going to be like, I want the pitch with the more whiffs. And so baseball started chasing whiffs, uh, and that's why strikeouts are up and strikeout rates are up, and that's why sinker usage has been down every year, year over year, for like 20 years. Yep, exactly. Like, <laughs> I mean, but well, well said, yes. It's definitely, once they've found out how to quantify, we used to call it the invisible. Um, there's a bunch of guys I played in the minors with, tons of guys, actually. Um, a guy named Julio Rodriguez is funny, uh, who who was who played with me. Didn't throw super hard, right-handed through like high 80s, but he had he probably had 22 inches of run ride, and we didn't know. But his, guys would just swing through this thing at 88 right down the middle in double A. I'm like, I don't get that, I don't understand. And that's what he what it was. It was like, and he had a little cut. So we couldn't, we just watched. That's all we had. So then uh, they said, oh, by the way, this number per turns into more swings and misses. And then the premium got put on that at the big leagues where it's, it's a true zero value for the hitter outcome, a strikeout. As close to that as you can get because there's still drops, strike threes. But nothing's going to happen if you strike a guy out unless, you know, you're on the the TCU horn for us and win a game like that. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, that uh, you know, it's your best way to like, prevent runs like you're just trying to prevent runs that's the the currency we started speaking josh Kalk. that's a great phrase he used he goes that's the currency that baseball trades in is runs so like you're trying to prevent or you're trying to score those that's how we that's where bill james came from with the with the money ball 
And then now we're finding all these different ways that each position does that. Pitching, the swing and miss became uh, the top of that list very quickly. And then everyone tried to figure out how to do it. You know, the difference between a sinker and a two seam is mostly uh, a sinker we think of as has two plane movement. It has sink and fade, whereas a two seam is more of a horizontal pitch um, that may even have ride. But it, it'll it'll what do you call arm side movement? Arm side I call movement. it fade. I think people call it fade, but like arm side movement. So that if you're th- if you're thinking about it in your head and uh, yeah, two seamers you know, I've come back in to some extent because I think uh, now uh, pitchers are realizing that they want to have multiple hard pitches. Uh, they don't want any hitter to be able to sit and say, okay, if he throws something hard, it's the four seamer up and that's it. So they want to throw a cutter off that, or they want to throw a two seam off that. So that the hitter says, Oh, it's hard. It's up. It's the four seam crap. Uh, it was the cutter or it was the two seam. Um, so almost using multiple fastballs as secondaries off of their primary fastball. So you can have your primary four seam and have a two seam that doesn't look great by stuff plus, or doesn't look great in the model or doesn't have the most amazing movement. But if somebody's expecting four seam and they get that two seam, they can still, they can still miss it or foul it, or you get that called strike or whatever it is that you're looking for. Yeah, you've talked about it as before. It's just wanting to have basically a banana peel. Everything kind of looks the same, come out of your hand, but then it has late movement that brings it a different direction, right? So with a four-seamer, it's ride. With the two-seamer, it might be that that run. It's cut on the cutter, goes the other way. And then there's all sorts of different shapes you have, but it looks the same. That's the important thing. The hitter thinks it's one thing, and it's not that. And you see some pretty goofy swings as a result of that. I think we should talk about who has a good two-seamer who does this really well in the game right now well when i think of a sinker i think of marcus stroman i just think he's got the best sinker in the game uh stuff plus doesn't necessarily agree but he also throws it a ton he does well with it look at that thing bang that's two plane movement it's it's you know it's it's just like the platonic ideal of a sinker i think and um i and you know we'll talk about this but release points matter and stuff like that matters um, but, uh, with him, that's a great a sinker. Who has a great two singer? Chris Bassett. Chris Bassett. By yeah. run value, he does. Pops is a plus 27 last year. That was the best in the league, kind of by a healthy margin. And his, his looks like a modern two seamer to me, right? We got a clip of him here. Like this is sideways top of the zone and just horizontal across and away, right? That was a left-handed hitter. Bassett's a righty, runs all the way across the top of the zone. That's a really difficult pitch to hit. And that's just not, you go back to that Mazzoni Maddox era in the 90s, people weren't throwing two seamers there back then. They really weren't. Uh, yeah, up. <laughs> the two seam up. Is like, I think that's when it comes down to it. Like, pay attention to where the catcher's setting up. Stroman's not going to have a catcher set up ever, uh, unless he's running four seam. And it's just like once an outing. Um, he'll do it because he likes to be able to do everything, but it's just not going to be the way he wants to do it. Like right there, that pitch right there, Bass was trying to go up and in and freeze a guy up in it. Um, that was the popular thing to do. Oh, he's trying to kind of front door him where front it, door it. it yeah. goes at him and then it comes in as a strike. But that's a nice pitch because if you do it high, like high and away is not a bad place to miss. Exactly. It's a good miss spot. It's your plan B is still a, uh, an opportunity to at least, and not only that, if you miss really bad and they they like it's you know they take it away or whatever, it kind of still sets up your pitches because the way Bassett pitches. So like he can do that and it doesn't really inform them 
much on what might come next. So that gives you a lot of room for error. It's not a throwaway pitch because you're still trying to be fine with it, but you don't have to be, which we just saw. Uh, and that's very, very much how he uses it. Lots of guys are starting to do that. Um, at Ottavito actually tried to throw his sinker up and in more to like righties because that's a spot guys couldn't hit. And he's, you know, he'll tell you, he's like, four seems not the most comfortable thing in the world to throw all the time. Um, he doesn't have a ton of rides. So he's just like, and it leaks over and he wants it to leak up and in. So like right on right, that's an opportunity for you to throw something that's fading in up and into a righty. And if you can get a strike, great. But if they swing at it, even better. If they don't, then you still have your big sweeper you could throw off of it. So like that's that's kind of what people were thinking with that or are thinking with that. So guys who can do it are trying to do it more. Some of the sinkers with the most horizontal movement include, uh, include Chris Sales sinker. But also we've got uh, here Aaron Loop. Uh, Christopher Sanchez has, I think, a beautiful sinker. It also has pretty good sink. You can see the vert move here on the table that we're showing for four seamers. That's where you used to see 17 and 18. Uh, so these guys uh, with the most horizontal movement have taken the four seam and just flipped it on its side. And so you'll see uh, these are these are huge uh, sinkers that have huge horizontal movement. And by and large, they're successful. But it's not necessarily when you saw that four seam ride list, I think you saw more of the best pitchers in the game, whereas this one you're seeing some relievers um, and uh, a young starter who, who may or may not be uh, may or may not join those ranks. But uh, and the same thing happens um, if you uh, if you do that same list by uh, vertical movement and you try to look at the guys that have the least amount uh, of uh, you had <laughs> Trevor May, <laughs> you threw two sinkers. You had the least amount of vertical movement, the, the most ride on your two seam. I will say neither one of those were sinkers either. So yeah, okay, uh, so just mistakes. <laughs> one was a changeup. <laughs> one was a change up. There you go. Uh, but if you if you do it the other way, with the, who has the most sink on their uh, fastballs? This is on their sinkers. This is where you start talking about the importance of your release point and how that interacts. Because these guys, Tyler Rogers, Adam Simber, Ryan Thompson, TJ McFarland, Tim Hill, Yanier Cano, Tanner Houck, they're all sidearm, you know, submarine. Uh, the reason they're getting sink is they're imparting almost like four seam spin, but they're so sideways that it's just, it is literally like a sideways four seamer instead, you know, and everything is just going into the ground. But that also isn't a list of the best pitchers in the baseball because, you know, to some extent hitters can see that arm slot and expect it. So here's, we thought like, could you see it with your eyes? Here's a here's not a great one. Here's a, a sinker that Stuff Plus doesn't like, that the results didn't like. Here is a, a Brady singer sinker, Brady singer sinker. It's nine. I don't mean to pick on anybody. I'm just I, you, we want to give examples. It's it's ninety. It comes from like it's not over the top, so it's not unexpected movement. It's kind of like what you would expect. It's like the fastball you would expect from that arm slot. And it has a little bit of sink and a little bit of fade. It has a little bit of movement, but you could see Chris Bassett's was like many more times the horizontal movement. And even Strowman's has like met much more of that, like, you know, that, that, that like downward movement. So singers just lost in between uh, on that one. And I think to some extent you can see it with your eyes. This is one of those pitches you can scout a little bit better. If you can really see like plus horizontal movement or plus drop, then you can start to separate it out from from you know the poor sinkers. That almost looked to me like he just he located it 
well, just oh, that's loan away, loan away, like uh, special uh, <laughs> on the old school thing. But what it looked like to me, from as like a very lay person when I watch pitching, it just looked to me like the energy that should have allowed the pitch to break differently was wasted. Like there's something in there, like you can see the movement, but it's not, it's not useful movement. It's just wasted energy is what it looks like. That's how I would describe it. I'm sure there's a, a better way to describe that. No, I mean, you're talking about turning spin into movement. So some of it is, should he be turning more of a spin into movement? Should he be choking more spin? Um, or should he be catching the seams differently? I think that Stroman does a good job of catching seams and getting some seam shifted wake. What you can see here, so on the right uh, for me, yeah, for you too. Uh, in the, against the blue, that's his sinker grip. It's a really weird sinker grip. Normally, two seamers and sinkers, you go along uh, the two seams there, and he's almost across them like a four seam, but then he's turned it, so it's almost got cutter-esque. Anyway, the reason this might work is if you can imagine where the seams are on the bottom of that ball, there's a seam that's going to collect. If he spins that sideways... There's a seam that's going to collect on the bottom and the seam that collects on the bottom creates a wake. And that's what seam shifted wake is. So that wake on the bottom is going to pull the ball down. So he's going to spin that ball sideways, but the seam is going to collect on the bottom and it's going to and it's going to put the drop on it. So the way he's spinning the ball would give him a good sideways two seamer. The way the seams collect is going to create the drop. And, and just so you know, the, the cutter is in green there. Look how similar those those grips are. I mean, he's got some sort of a weird cutterish grip on there. Reminds me a little bit. Zach Britton held his crazy sinker in a cutter grip. So there's certain ways that your grip can interact with your arm slot to create movement that's unexpected, and that's the name of the game. I mean, everybody wants unexpected movement as a pitcher. I think those two pitches also spin like from a hitter's view very close to the same way. But like you said, when I changed my change up to a seam shifted uh grip change up to get the arm side fade uh way more than i would ever gotten like literally eight nine inches more on average it spins still in a supinated spinning motion to where it looks like it's gonna cut like it, you're spinning like a breaking ball and then it goes the other way and that is something that is disconcerting for a hitter to see because again you can pick up on that late and make a late a late adjustment Hitters say they take, pick up on spin out the hand. They pick on hand hand position first. They don't pick a C spin until it's way closer to them. And it, at that point, it's only a slight adjustment of the swing, not whether or not you swing or not. So guys who, like me, I said Mickey Cabrera last week as the guy who was toughest to face. That's what he did. He, he could make that decision really late and just like foul it off. Other guys swing and miss. And so that's when you see a seam, seam shifted changeup and a sinker, for example, uh, those two things together, that's when the misses are starting to come more. Even if it's not moving as much in vacuum, it's because they look the same out of the hand. It's another element that looks the same. In his case, it's the cutter and the sinker look the same, but they go different directions. So that's how he gets these the soft content, the swinging bunts and, and things. That's why he gets so much of that. If you want to see uh, one that I'm sure is a seam shift away sinker, there's a, I think we have a Clay Holmes clip in there. We do. Here's Clay Holmes. <laughs> let's watch it again because Jeez. now think about what his arm slot is he's over the top and then he throws a Strowman right like it's a, the Strowman s sinker from a guy who has a different arm slot and so as a hitter you step in and you go okay and you don't even you might not say this out loud so a, a hitter might say you don't know what you're talking about I never think about these things 
it's it's like um your brain has these chunks these like these motor functions and it, it'll it, you won't even think about it but you'll stand in against a picture and you'll see him and you'll see they move a certain way and your brain is they know this here's a way that another way they know this is true so they do gaze tracking now on on hitters and they can see what you're looking at as a hitter and what happens is the hitter picks up the ball at release and then the eyes jump ahead and catch the ball again. And then when they catch the ball again, they jump ahead again and catch the ball. And you know what your brain is doing when it's doing that? It's it's thinking expected movement. So your brain has a function where it says, okay, this guy throwing with that kind of release, maybe I saw a finger, maybe I saw something. You can't say these things out loud. You can't be like, well, you know, I saw the finger. No, what happens is your brain is just like, bang, oh, what, oh, okay. Uh, and then the the eyes are like, okay, we expect movement to be here. Ah, we caught it. Yes, we were right. And then we're good. we go up ahead. And, oh, we caught it right. Bang, contact, you know? And so all you're trying to do as a pitcher is mess with all of that. And be like, come up there and be like, I'm going to be way up here and all the balls are going to go straight into the ground. Or I'm going to be way down here and all the balls are going to go straight up into the air. You know, <laughs> like that's 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 sort of the science of pitching as it is now. So Clay Holmes is kind of like the modern sinker, I guess, or the modern two seamer. That's a sinker. And the modern sinker is Clay Holmes over the top. Why did that go into the ground like that? Yeah, the seam shift. The see, he is kind of a the seam shifted darling because he started to do that, and then he was a guy everyone used examples of to use that term. Um, it, it's all about that's why I think a lot. That's where a lot of the criticism of the clock from the pitchers came from, is because that was also a function people were using, uh, like just trying to get him to forget what just happened or trying to, you know, like now that wasn't there anymore. So you had to do it more with the actual, cause you're in a, such a consistent cadence. You weren't able to use that. So that's, that all kind of is, is attached, uh, that way. Uh, one also interesting thing that maybe it's for a, a future episode, but, uh, I was, did a little bit of research into Josh Hader and, and it is possible to throw a two seam that you seam shift into a ride fastball, which is yes. wild. Um, and that's, he might be, I haven't found another guy who can do it, but Josh Hader has, throws a sinker that r rides. Has way more ride than people expect. I mean, I thought it was hand position because he told me he kind of tries to stay vertical on the hand, uh, even though he's out there. So Michael Givens does this too, where it's like, you know, he, you see the arm out there, but the hand is kind of up. And so the spin is more vertical than you expect. But it it is true. Seam shift to wake, it does not mean it has to go down. What I'm saying, what happens is the seam collects somewhere. So you can have seam that helps it stay up. The sweeper, the sweeper is a slider with the seam catchers on the top and that keeps the ball from dropping. So hitters see this, the, the sweeper and think that's going to drop. That's a slurve. That's a slider. It's going to drop. And instead they get just horizontal movement that often they swing under it. And so I hadn't thought of that that Hader might have a seam shifted forcing that does exist. Uh, that's a, that's a fun idea. It does exist. And I, we, I did some re I searched for anyone else that was close and uh, there wasn't another person that explains why he's been like, he can just, he could right, right when he came up, he could just only throw that pitch is because it looks like it's going to drop or run or something. And it is, does Seawald is like that a little bit. Possibly, but I, I know that uh, it's classified as a sinker. Haters is he like throws right, it with totally. the two team grip. So it's like, how do you do, how do you do this? And it's just naturally how he throws allows him to do that. And he might be a unicorn in that uh, in that distinction. I don't know. I don't know if guys are being taught it. It's gonna be interesting to see how this year goes because I feel like more people are figuring it out.
if you look at the best sinkers in the game, you got Bruzdar Gradwall, that's Velo, you know, Jordan Hicks, that's Velo. But you have Sean Hagelli by Stuff Plus, uh, and that's because he's, you know, eight feet tall and, you know, throws a, a weird sinker from a weird release point up in the sky. You know, people just, you know, they don't expect to look up at a, a sinker like this. Sandy Alcantara, I'd say that's Velo and Good Shape. Uh, Brian Wu and then Josh Hader right there. It says it's a sinker and it says it's one of the best in the game. Ryan Thompson is the is the first guy that throws one of those weird, those really great vertical movement sinkers that we saw that's expected. Ryan Thompson is the only one off that list that I said that shows up in the top 10 uh, by Stuff Plus because it's more expected. But Thompson just gets a lot, a lot of sinks. So he kind of gets past that. You know, it might be expected, but it's still even more than you expect, you know. So if you do something that's expected, if you're an over-the-top guy who throws a four seam with ride, then you kind of need like 18 and 19 these days. You need to be to go past that expectation. You need to go way up. And if you're a, a sinker guy that throws a sinker with sink and fade on it, you need to kind of be Ryan Thompson and throw way past that. If you kind of throw Brady Singer, then you're kind of then you you should you'd almost you just try to like get some yes here's a here's a look at it with stuff plus the interactions you can see those reds at the top are two seamers i think so the reds at the top uh this is horizontal by vertical movement the reds at the top don't have drop those are two seamers you know those are those are those are, are great pitches that have a lot of horizontal that's like where the chris bassett pitches are those at the bottom there there's only three little zones there that's ryan thompson and marcus stroman and them um, and I think what we're looking at Jonathan Loisega, he has a two seam. And I think we actually have a clip of this, but it's a two seam. It's like it's it's a sideways thing. Look at that. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and and good velo. But like that's Jonathan Loisega. He's hanging out there in the like it has a, a little bit of ride still. And and it, and it just goes. It's like a it's like a I don't know. It's a Frisbee. It's a reverse hard Frisbee. Yeah, like visually, it looked more like Bassett's, but with three more ticks on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a good pitch. <laughs> That'll work. Every pitch, we mentioned this last year or last week, and you, uh, every time we show one of these graphics, wherever that cluster of blue is usually where this is, but there's a dead zone for every single pitch. It's just where that range is. These blue clusters the singer, in the middle. Right? That's the singer. Yeah, that's right the singer. There. He like a dead, a he of... dead stone sinker. Yes. Yeah. And the more you're in that, the harder you need to throw, generally. For both pitches. So if Paul Skeens is in one of these buckets that's blue, um, that's just horizontal and vertical movement. The nice thing about Stuff Plus is it then goes and looks at Velo, right? And so, you know, it doesn't just do this and say it's bad. So Paul Skeens, if he throws 102, the shape might not matter so much. I mean, that's something you said about Shintaro Fujinami. The shape doesn't matter that much if you're throwing that hard. But if you can get both. Then you're Felix Bautista, you're Derek exactly. Cole, you know, you're like one of these uh, these guys. Just thinking about Brady Singer on the bad side of this, right? And how much of this could be organizational philosophy or even a case where maybe a player's arsenal and philosophy doesn't line up with the org's philosophy? Like, what do you make of someone who continues to have a pitch like that that grades out so poorly that they just keep throwing over and over and over again? Like, where does the blame fall in a situation like that? They have scouting, so to some extent they've been scouting a lot of, like Daniel Lynch, they've scouted a lot of guys who have sinkers. And either they're old school scouts that still think sinkers are the best, 
or they've convinced themselves we're going to be ahead of the next curve and we're going to have all the sinker guys when everyone's looking for four seam guys. Either way, it hasn't worked. I mean, location, just, yeah. just the example we saw, right? Like he's throwing it low. If anything, throw it up. But it was, it was at 90. I don't think you want to throw 90 up in the zone. He's limited. He's limited in his options. It's very interesting. I mean, who knows if they've like kind of been like, this is just maybe who he is. We get maybe we're trying, they're trying a split or two or like finding another pitch that that can just set up. If you have a great slider, you can get away with that stuff. So it's and just he a does. You're throwing. I mean, that's why he had a good season that one year is that he just threw the slider more and it's a great slider. But you have to have really good command when that comes in. And especially the last couple of years, his command of his fastball hasn't been very good. He's trying to throw it down and away for righties all the time. It should be in only to righties, if, especially if you're throwing that hard. Like he needs like a cutter. He needs something to go away uh, that's not his slider or or something that's harder to get to that slider if that's your bread and butter, if you if it's not that good. But there's also a chance that like they just don't know. Think about this. What you just said, R- sinker's in right, right, right in. He throws down the middle and towards low and away. So the two positions he throws to are down the middle and low and away. And those are the two worst places. So that I think points to some organizational mix up. That's like your game plan is your catcher and your organization. And if that's what they're telling you to keep throwing your sinker, then there's a, there's somebody's not telling you the right thing. But exactly. I knew of a pitcher that pitched for the Royals that threw that worked all offseason on a sweeper. He comes in um, to the to the to the uh, the team. They tell him to stop throwing the sweeper. He does. He he doesn't throw the sweeper. Has a 15 ERA in the first half, and he says, "Well, <laughs> screw this." Just starts throwing the sweeper, and they don't notice, and they don't they don't tell him to stop. And he didn't have a great second half, but he had a better second half, and that speaks to me to like they don't necessarily, they weren't giving great advice and they weren't on top of what was happening. Because if they told him not to throw a sweeper and he just started throwing a sweeper again, they didn't notice, then what are they looking at? What are they doing every day? You know, as coaches, like what are what are they looking at? And so, you know, this person probably went to tread or driveline or somewhere, had his own coaches. They told him the sweeper is good. You know, he's, you know, he's texting them when he has a 15 ERA and he's like, they won't, they tell me not to throw it. And they tell him, dude just throw it you know if they ask call it a slider so like have you had that happen in your life where you're just like i don't think i'm getting good advice from the coaches in my organization i need to go outside or not really i I, to be honest like those years that i maybe would have had that be a problem i was hurt uh and so (laughs) i was i was spared that a little bit and then coming back josh got to minnesota like he changed things there big way i mean that and then you know hafner was there working with him too so like that was my filter that it was being filtered through and then me and have struck it up real quick because i'm always asking i mean it's pretty clear that i'm curious about this stuff so like i actually was a little more cutting edge than the coaches sometimes and i would bring stuff so after that point after 2018 it was me bringing stuff to have me like what do you think of this i saw this what do you think of this uh talking to this guy what do you think of this and then when i went to new york it was just that's all we did we just sat there and talked and about nobody it ever told you like what are you doing like this this is wrong or this isn't what we believe as an organization or like what is this we had the prerequisite conversation where I was like, what do we think of this? And then we would test it and then make a decision together. So like we were both part of the process from the beginning. If you can just do that, if like you go, hey, I have a plan and I'm executing my plan and I'm very bought into my plan, ears perk up, no matter how solid they are in their process, that's what you want. You want the player to to be the one finding stuff, bringing it to you and so that everyone can get on board because it's pretty easy to like, trust a guy when he's obviously done the research but unfortunately like sometimes guys 22 
we're just not going to listen to him because he's young. And uh, I was fortunate this stuff didn't exist when I was 22. And I'd been around enough when it started to become so I had already built some equity kind of that way, some trust that way. I had a little bit of trust built and people knew who I was. I was talking to a 19 year old or 20 year old in the Angels organization about like, what do you do? Uh, everyone thinks you guys have bottom shelf, you know, coaching. They let go. He was telling me they'd let go of the two of the better coaches that they had in Dylan Axelrod. He was like, those are the two best guys we had. And I was like, well, what do you do on the other days? Like, if you think you're, you're, you're high A or low A or whatever, your pitching coach at your organization, at your level is bad, what do you do? And he says, well, if you come in with a plan, they usually don't stop you. You know, like if you come in looking like you know what you're going to do, they're not going to tell you any different. So that's part of it. And I said, well, you still have to talk to him. So what do you do when you talk to him? And he said, oh, I just ask him about his playing days. <laughs> <laughs> that's more common than you think. That's more common than you think. It's it's uh, frustrating at times. Yeah, for sure. He's, and you know, I've talked to plenty of coaches. They will talk about their playing days. <laughs> That's part of it. Some guys are literally there to be part of the team again. Like that's sometimes that's 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 what's happening. You know, I, I'm empathetic to that. But when a kid's young and like hungry to learn, like it can be very frustrating and they, and they just search for they can find it. I like that you were talking about there's a sort of trust level where like you could bring something in. You trusted them to like, you know, bring something that you weren't sure about. They trusted you to listen to you and then take it. There's a tr real trust factor between coaches and players. And so that's one thing that sort of occurred to me when I was reading this piece about the the Pirates, this great piece by uh, by Stephen Nesbitt and um, Ken Rosenthal. Uh, Ken Rosenthal about how um, you know so Cabrian Hayes, um, you know, I, I don't buy the entire narrative that's laid out in the in the piece. That's like Cabrian Hayes was bad, and then he talked to Joe Nunnally, this coach, and then he was good. Because if you actually look at Cabrian Hayes' process, he was lifting the ball already he was doing some stuff process wise already before he went and talked to Joe Nunnally but I also don't buy that Joe Nunnally did nothing I, I believe that their conversations probably helped Cabrian Hayes in some way he had a better second half and then the team let Joe Nunnally go at the end of the season and I can I can kind of see their perspective a little bit because they didn't trust the team to tell them so the big deal was Nunnally and Hayes were meeting in private and they said it was going to be a secret. So now if I'm the GM, I'm like, why? Why do you think we would, why do you think we would tell you you couldn't go to the double-A hitting coach? Why? We employ him. We think he's good. If he's the voice you hear, if he's the connection you can make, we would love you to make that connection. Why do you think, so, you know, if I'm meeting with Joe Nunnally at the end of the year, I have to say, why did you know? Why did you keep this from us? You know, so that's one perspective. But also, you have to think, what are we doing wrong that you felt you had to keep this from us? There's something in our culture that we need to look at that you thought that. And then, lastly, like a lot of the pirates' young hitters are coming through and striking out more than you'd expect. So there's a lot of moving parts. I don't want to say that like, oh, not only kept it a secret and made their best player their best player better and got fired for it. Like it's there's I want to give a little bit of room for like, no, there's more stuff going on than that. But I also it's a it's a it's a damning look and it's a it's it's not a good look for the organization that like they would fire somebody for working with one of their own players. Not a great look, but more common than you think. And there's more stuff going on. Maybe there's 
you know, they're very strict in their philosophy. Maybe, maybe the hitting coach wants to be a part of the conversation. Some teams micromanage a little bit, right? They don't agree right away and they have a little bit, it becomes a headache. And maybe the guy's not super receptive when he brought some of the stuff to him previously, like Brian, maybe, maybe in spring, he didn't like the way, like he had something like, well, I don't know about that. And then that's the end of it. Yeah. Maybe the major league hitting coach had, it was like, you know what? I, why did you have to do that? I was talking yeah. to him. What did no, I do? No, no, do what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm the big I'm league coach. And, yeah, and yeah. that's, I mean, that's common. It's very common. And then when that happens once or twice, you're like, oh, Dude, it's not that, like, just let me try some stuff. And then you just got to go do the thing, and then it kind of turns into a secret thing. That's probably how it played out. But I do understand, like, the, the organization has been, like, you can't hide these things because now we don't know what he's doing. Right. But, like, <laughs> who knows Who knows if that's being, like, a, a thing that people feel comfortable doing or if they're like, our philosophy, it's this way or the highway. Right, and if that's right. the way it is, and you're afraid to have any, like, come forward with any, like, maybe outside the box ideas or or just to go against the grain and play to paint a, uh, a target on your back, then I could see how it'd be very, very like enticing to maybe keep it a secret. Like from a like a GM's perspective or a president of baseball operations perspective, like you want to have uh, tenants like truths that you have in an organization. You're like we believe in the T-shirts, you know, like control the zone or like you know whatever it is, throw gas, you know, whatever it or is. Whatever the signs are at the Washington Nationals. I don't care how hard you throw a ball for. <laughs> that, that, that's a bad one, but that is an example <laughs> of what I'm talking about. Is like you want to you want to like broadcast beliefs because you believe these things lead to success, and so you want to have all your coaches kind of in line. You want because if they're all saying different stuff, then you have no idea of knowing does our organizational philosophy even work. You kind of want everybody on the same page. On the same level, though, you want to allow for growth because what you believe now, three years from now, you might be like, well, we were wrong about that or we were wrong about that or the game changed. You want to be able to change with the game. And and each of these players, some of them are going to hear different, are going to be better for different reasons. You're, you know, need to hear different voices. And so that, I think, is the, the major tension in player development. And I think a lot of teams are just like, yeah, so I throw my hands up and I don't care. And I just get who I think are good coaches. And, you know, and, and they go to driveline, they get better. So why do I need to spend that much on player development? This is part of why player development is not being spent a lot of money on is because they can be like, well, you can either go to driveline, get it better or talk to one of our guys and maybe just magically get better. But it's just too hard to make everyone believe the same thing and stay on top of it and keep the org going in the same direction and also leave room for nuance. How am I supposed to do that? I can't do that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult, but the best organizations do that. Like I do believe, you know, the, the, the Mariners taught everybody the sweeper because they were like, we have a belief. We believe in Stuff Plus and we're going to teach everybody the sweeper because Stuff Plus says this is a good pitch. But they have enough nuance and uh, like changeability to say, OK, well, yeah, Gilbert, you can't really command it. And, uh, you know, oh, Bryce Miller, it's not really working for you because everybody can see it coming. And I don't know if they're still teaching the sweeper to everybody, but it is good sometimes to take that chance and be like, let's teach everybody something that we think is true yeah. we're talking about the twins batters i don't know if you ever noticed this but the twins batters we have this there's this new stat called uh seager which is just do you swing at strikes aggressively at hittable pitches aggressively and not at unhittable pitches so not just looking at chase but looking at how aggressive you are in the zone and the twins are really good at uh at being aggressive in the zone and being passive outside the zone as hitters and then the, when they hit the ball they hit it hard and they hit it in the air. 
And this seems to be true the going back like 10 years, like f- at least five years, like in the StatCast era. They like one of the leaders in barrels over the whole list, list of five years. Like they have an ethos. They have, a, they have an idea. And it doesn't always work out the exact same way. Royce Lewis is not the same guy as Edouard Julian, but they got taught some of the similar things and it, it helped them get better. So... I think the Twins are a pretty good example across the board of player development. I think they're kind of an underrated one. I agree. I watched that happen. Anyone asked me about going there, I'm like, they could have a good organization that knows what they're doing. And they have a philosophy, and it's going to be apparent the moment you get there. And that's pretty much all you can ask for. Right. And it's right. up to you from there at that point on. Yeah. You just have want, an you want everything to like, feel like have it's together. an idea. Yeah. And then afterwards, you can say, okay, Trevor has a different idea. Let's listen to him for a second. Yeah, let's adjust. Let's adjust off the idea. And when you get stuck on the idea and you're not willing to adjust, you don't have the people that can do that very well, or they, they for some reason, they can't think bigger. Uh, and those are the people that are the ones that are supposed to be like your mentor. That can get frustrating when you're trying to expand outside of the knowledge maybe that you're, the, the group, your organization has. So, yeah, definitely. Um, but that's the best way to do it. The Dodgers, the Rays, the Twins, the, these guys, they're very good at that. Astros. Very and what I read in that piece with the Pirates is like, they're trying to get to the moment where they have an ethos. They're trying to get to the place where they have a plan. And so maybe it's just hard to be like, well, we couldn't be that open-minded right now because we haven't even gotten to the place where we have a plan and everyone knows what the plan is. You know, we're still trying to been a decade, fire guys. the bad coaches. Like how long do you need? Yeah, I guess. Know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It is a question of how long that takes. It could take a long time. I mean, you have a lot of coaches you have to weed through in the minors. It's, there's a lot of coaches. You could have a good plan or a great plan. If you don't have good players, it's only going to get you so far. Right. Yeah, so then there's a scouting question too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge part of it. I want to get a couple of questions and I know we're running a little long. Let's get this one in here. This one's from Bob. This is the other man. People are firing a lot of questions in here. Why does it seem so hard for teams to make adjustments in season? Speaking mainly from an offensive standpoint. You can might look at your process stats and be like, well, I'm still hitting the ball hard. I'm just not getting lucky. And then I think the, one of the biggest, hardest questions, especially as a veteran, is to say, like, this thing that got me here to the big leagues, is this, like, one of those, like, short-term dips where I just need to keep going through this? Or is this, like, an existential crisis and I need to actually make a big adjustment? If it's a small adjustment, I think people are making those adjustments. I think people are making small adjustments. But if you're asking for, like, a big adjustment... A lot of times that's going to happen in the offseason when they said, well, that was a terrible season. I'm 29 years old and I just had the worst season of my career. Now I'm going to make a swing change or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to do bat speed training, whatever it is. I'm going to go add a new pitch. I'm going to go to drive. I'm going to do weighted balls for the first time. But in season, drastic change, I think is I don't think I think and you can maybe speak to the schedule is also something that doesn't really lead to opportunities for drastic change within a season. You have to perform. Performing becomes like we always say, it doesn't matter. I always told on my relievers, it didn't, none of this matters until you get out there. If you, this stuff doesn't translate into uh, success out there, they only watch that. No matter how much they act like, you know, they're keeping track of how much you run every day. If you're out there throwing well, it doesn't matter how much you're running every day at the end of the day. None you of this matters. You have the biggest at all. gut if you are. If you're, if yeah, you're some guys well. can do nothing and be successful. Obviously, that won't last for a very long time, in my opinion, yeah. in this game. But if it is working at the time, like there's simply nothing you can say. You just can't prove that it's not going to work until it doesn't. So that's the, that's that's what it comes down to. But I think that organizationally making adjustments, which is interesting, the the adjustment part is built into your philosophy. It's baked in. And people, Growth the teams, which is the whatever. middle of the road, I think the middle of the road, like the middle, 
you know, 15 teams that are kind of have a philosophy, they tend to not have an adjustment built baked in. And that's, that's the problem. Um, so they come up, they have their thing, they're going to do it. And then they're like, it's not working for like too many guys at the same time. They're like, now what do we, how do we win games here? What can we lean on? How can we adjust? Or is there like a new pitch that is going against our philosophy? How do we make an adjustment here? The teams that don't have that baked in are much slower in making that transition. So you see certain teams adjusting quick and other teams. Which teams added the sweeper quickly? That That's almost a good a, a example of that's like how good example. is the player development in that, in that organization. The Mariners, the Dodgers, the Yankees, they were throwing the sweepers right away. It's a somewhat related question here from Sean. Is the biggest inefficiency in player development at orgs who struggle over and over a mindset gap, a process gap, or a resources gap? I'd say process and resources are the top because they're linked. Um, you get new processy, uh, processes going, and then you need the resources to make the analysis of that process keep going. So like, it's like, are we willing to try this new machine or this new technology? Are we willing to try this new pitch, which is kind of a technology uh, in, in, at the end of the day. So like, are we willing to put these new things that have been discovered into our philosophy and how quickly are we willing to do it? And then if it's something that everyone there doesn't quite, doesn't quite know about, do you go out, do you have people that will go out and search for that information? Would they go to the pitching conferences, your pitching coaches and learn something new? You have to will pay for them to go to the pitching people? conferences. Yeah, exactly. Then, then, then resources come in. What resources do we have in house and what is our ability to go get, information outside of outside of that and then how willing are we to do that some teams are really like sticklers on it being in-house and it being their idea i feel like that's just hubris but it is what it is right there are certain teams that literally like they didn't come up with it they don't want to do it which (laughs) doesn't make sense if you're really trying to win but you know that's also like there's all tons of companies that do that so like it happens but it's really interesting but yeah i think it's definitely process and then resources sometimes you're not willing to change the process because you don't have the resources and so you just kind of stay and you're okay with that i kind of hew towards resources number one if i had to rank them and the reason the reasoning i'm giving is that the resources will get you the better people you're going to get better people if you pay better they help develop the process yeah and they're going to have a better mindset you know and they're going to have and they're going to have develop a better process what you know what is process a lot of times other than better data and tech well that costs money Chicken and I rig. think that the, the hardest thing about resources and player development is, you know, uh, Kyle Bodie told me this once. He said, you know, if you want to know how good you are at resources at, at, at player development, you have to know first, this is how good the player is. You have to know that. Well, we're OK at player evaluation, but it's not like that has no noise. That's going to have some noise. He might be better than we think or worse than we think. We, but we think this is how good he is. Then we're going to do some stuff, you know, to this player. And then again, we have to test them at the end. So we have to know how good that stuff is that we did to him. And then we have to test him again at the end and be like, this is how good he is. And each of those things has noise, right? So, you know, you can, the the sort of, the driveline take is, okay, let's test everything. We're just going to, everything, we're, they record meetings between coaches and players so that they can use AI in order to look at how good, how coaches speak to players and optimize that. You know, so like they test everything 
And that's one way of, of doing it. But if you're not testing everything and it gets harder when you're an organization because you can't like your aura ring idea, we were talking about this, like your the way that you were the stuff you were tracking, that that would be really valuable to an organization. How are you sleeping? How much are you drinking? And what are you doing? When do you go to bed at night? When do you actually sleep? All this stuff would be super important for a team to know the players may not want to give it to you. And they have the right over that data in the first place. They very much don't want to give it to you, frankly. <laughs> yeah, Nobody right. does. Yeah, so. <laughs> like it's, a, it's a hard no for most guys. That makes it difficult. So a team says, wow, that just looks difficult. You know, like, eh, you want to give me, you want more money for what? That machine? Are you sure it's going to work? You want, you want, you want me to give you money to put like weird goggles on hitters so that they can like watch pitches and then tell me about how their eyes are doing. And you think this is going to make us better? And you need like $2 million for this? Uh, I don't know. Just look how slow some teams are to get Hawkeye. Anything that's an expense is going to be like pulling teeth. And uh, if especially the people trying to pitch it don't fully understand it, you're not going to get that funded. You got to have the people to get it. And uh, there's not that many yet uh, that, that truly have a deep understanding top to bottom of, of uh, what makes the best players. As Like you said, there's noise everywhere too. So you got to be willing to be like, Kind of in the in the ballpark. That's as good as you're going to get. Right. We're we're pretty sure this is right. There you go. From Dan on the live stream. I agree. My boss wants to know what I'm drinking. (laughs) Things are going to get weird on Monday mornings. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to give up that information. Exactly. They they see us every day. You got enough. (laughs) Multiple questions in the stream. Trevor, are you playing fantasy now? I got to ask this yesterday, too. I I guess I got to. Though I don't know if, if we're it's trying too late. to come I don't up know. with a game that that Trevor can play along with all of us. So I don't know. Maybe I'll just do one of the like uh, just just a random make up a name and just join a random like just you know uh, open league that just there's nothing on the line at all. I'm just like messing around, uh, so I have something to follow along with. I guess maybe that's a good place to start. You got to get on our Discord, yeah. Trevor. There's tons of leagues open there. There we go. There, yeah, maybe I'll just, but, I, but the thing is, it'd be you. cool to go anonymous. I think it'd be really fun to go anonymous. Everyone's like, where's this? <laughs> you know, I don't even know if I'm good, but what if I am? <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, who, how, this guy has inside info. You're right, right, I do. <laughs> I got numbers. Speaking of the Discord, our last question, which is uh, from Yancey, longtime listener of the show. Yancey was hoping we could ask you what message you have for the 83 people that have drafted you in NFBC leagues so far this season. It's the National Fantasy Baseball <laughs> Championship. 83 people have put you on a team over the course of the winter. You should watch more YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a person who's on YouTube, you know that I retired. Yeah. Uh, and I'm getting that question a lot. Hey, are you going to come to the Blue Jays? Like, like you, <laughs> we, you still need somebody. I'm like, I, I do not play baseball anymore. Like, I don't know how oh, people hit me up for tickets. <laughs> Uh, just like all kinds of stuff, man. Uh, uh, would you come out of retirement for this? I'm like, I, I retired in, in October. It was never on the table. <laughs> I, like, you haven't given me a chance to miss it yet. Just let me let me miss it first. I'll, I'll let you know. But yeah, it's, sorry, you're, those papers in. <laughs> good luck. If one of you guys win your league, uh, let us know at the end of the year. That's, yeah, one of the 83 very, wins you know. our league. That would be awesome. That'd be a good story. We'll check in on that in September. Yeah, watch more YouTube and follow Trevor on Twitter at I am Trevor May. Find Eno at Eno. 
Osiris. Find me at Derek and Riper. The pod is at Rates and Barrels. Join the Discord. We'll put a link in the show description. Tons of great threads going there. Uh, people trying to find leagues. People just sharing fanhood. All sorts of good stuff happening in there. Live pods in New York, March 20 and March 21, Williamsburg. At Other Half Brewing. Looking forward to that. It's going to be a great time. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to like this video on YouTube. Leave us a nice rating and review. Have a great weekend, everybody. We're back with you on Monday. Thanks for listening.